You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. There is a joke in here somewhere, I'm sure, that the longest podcast I've ever recorded focuses largely on ADHD. The topic of neurodiversity, however, seems to be everywhere these days. Certainly, amongst my peer group, I've seen many share recent diagnoses of ADHD, and if you're on TikTok, the explainer videos are as ubiquitous as the dancing. Listening and reading about how neurodiversity has impacted so many lives prompted me to start learning more. Enter Nadine Araxi, one of my peers who was diagnosed in her 40s with ADHD and wrote an article for Canadian Business about supporting neurodivergency in the workplace. Together with Christina Crow from Dig a Little Deeper, we spend the next hour discussing how ADHD can present different for women, how adult diagnoses can be a game changer, and how businesses can benefit from employing a neurodiverse workforce. There's a lot of great information in this one, and you may even find yourself having a few light bulb moments like I did. Meet Nadine Araxi and Christina Crow. Welcome to the podcast, Christina and Nadine. I am very excited about this conversation because for starters, I keep hearing about neurodiversity. Why is this so in our face right now? Uh, I I can take that, I guess, to start and then I'll pass it over to Christina. Um, Yeah, I think um, it's very interesting. When we talk about neurodiversity, we're obviously using a banner term. It covers a broad spectrum of neuroatypical conditions. Um, that impact one's living condition. So things like autism, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, could be dyslexia, could be dyscalculia. There's a whole list. Um, And why we're talking about it right now is, this is my personal belief, um, I feel like the pandemic and with many people working from home and in the absence of the, you know, external distractions we used to have, uh, it's made space for people to notice where they might be struggling with getting things done, with inattention, with um, impulsivity and things like that, or people are just feeling a general discomfort and they're starting to ask the question like, why am I like that? So I want to come back to that because there's something I want to come back to on that point. Uh, because I, I find it interesting how our collective attention fo- hyper focuses on something. Um, and, and that seems to be the, the, the case right now with neurodiversity because everywhere I turn, it's in magazine articles. Nadine, your article in Canadian business was actually what, you know, um, compelled me to ask the two of you to join me. Um, but Christina, just just for you know, before we'll back it up even a little bit further, let's define let's define neurodiversity. Sure. So um, Nadine's actually got it bang on. Neurodiversity refers to uh, ways that people think and move in the world that are not typical. They're more diverse. So I think a rough guidepost is about eighty percent of brains might be considered neurotypical meaning kind of like standard, um, fall in line with the, the standard ways of thinking about things, thinking in like a linear way, for example. And about maybe 20% of brains in the world could be considered neurodivergent, meaning um, 
they think maybe in a nonlinear way and things are, are wired differently and their processing is differently. Is that, you know, over the course of the last 200 years, uh, that's gone from being described as a disease to a disorder to now a difference. And it's really a cognitive difference. And there's benefits to thinking differently about things that are pro-social, protective. Um, they're here for a reason in terms of our evolutionary patterns as human beings. And the reason it becomes an issue in the mental health corner where I firmly sit is because left unchecked, there's things that can become quite problematic and leave us with mental health problems. And that's why it's an issue that that comes up in, in mental health. And so uh, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, um, some people would say obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD is there, learning differences, processing differences, like auditory or information processing differences. You know, everybody might learn a little bit differently. And then the extent to which that um, impacts your functioning in our mostly typical world can, can be something that can be hard to live with, or it can be something that, depending on the environment you grow up in, is celebrated and you thrive. And so one person's uh, presentation of ADHD is not the same person, the next person's presentation of ADHD. And that's why it becomes really complicated. But when people with ADHD, for example, find each other and meet, and they click, and they get each other, um, that, kind of the cool thing that's come up to, to Nadine's point about the pandemic is there's a whole massive community of people who are neurodivergent, who have found each other, who are taking great comfort in that community. And that's a pretty cool thing. Okay, so let's go back to Nadine's comment about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are locked in their homes, they've got some time to do some reflection now. And I mean, I would say most of us became pretty addicted to social media uh, in that time. And that's when we start to see like, you know, I started to see all these videos. Do you have ADHD? And, you know, putting that, that definition on it. And so do you think people maybe previously didn't even think they had it and then start to see these videos and then has there, like, I guess what I'm, th I'm, I'm getting at, do you think people are self-diagnosing themselves with this, that they maybe don't have it, but they go, oh, that's me. Because I mean, I know, for example, my attention span is ridiculously short because of TikTok now. <laughs> I don't know if that would mean that I have ADHD at this point. Uh, so what? how do you think that's affected the whole discussion? I'll say that, you know, ADHD um, is a, we have a deficit in dopamine which is like regulates the reward center in your brain. So every time we get a piece of information and everyone's, you know, reward system, their dopamine um, high is different. And in ADHD brains, we're constantly looking for ding, 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 ding. And social media makes that really easy. We also know if you've watched um, any of the documentaries that are out right now around social media and how a lot of these algorithms were designed and these platforms were designed that the intent is to keep you on there longer because then they make more money. Um, so they are actually, every time you get a like, every time you get a comment, it's triggering the dopamine center in everyone's brain. So not just ADHD brains, um, 
But in in my experience, it looks like I'm in a meeting, I should be paying attention, but I'm scrolling Instagram. Um, And so I'm going to pass it over to Christina because she'll have a much, much more succinct answer, I think, on this because it's, you know, her specialty. But just personally speaking, I think, yes, sometimes it resonates with you. And I definitely, it was a quiz I did, you know, a dozen years ago on Twitter, I think that led me to my ADHD <laughs> diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I met other ADHD brains through social media platforms. Like it's been very validating. And what I love about um, TikTok, ADHD TikTok in particular, um, is that I've learned things about ADHD that I didn't know. I had a very limited view of of things, uh, and then when I watch these videos where they're sharing information that is scientifically based, often it's like, oh, that's why. Oh, I, I was always called too sensitive. Oh, there's something called, um, you know, sensory. Um, what is it called, Christina? It's called something. Just yeah, it's like a sensory disorder? process or, or um, reje- rejection disorder. rejection <laughs> sensitivity is something that's very mm-hmm. common in ADHD brains, right? So someone gives you a negative piece of feedback, you might overreact compared to a typical brain. Um, and so all these little things where it's like, oh, oh, that's ADHD too. I pick my cuticles. Well, skin picking is a very ADHD habit. I had no idea. And instead, I've spent my life, you know, Think having negative thoughts and internalizing messages from like a parent or something like that, that something's wrong with me. And I think what social media has done for me as an ADHD brain is given me self-acceptance in a way that I wasn't able to access before. Christina's videos in particular, like they're so good. Every time I watch one, I'm just like, oh God, yeah. Nadine, now I know you in real life. So whenever people I know in real life see my videos, I think, oh my gosh. <laughs> um Uh, So I love to, I don't know if I can be succinct because I like to add a lot of nuance to these kinds of conversations, right? So Candace, 100%, you can't say that you have ADHD because even if a lot of the criteria fits, you don't know. Um, I will say self-diagnosis is valid and it's valid for reasons of accessibility. And for, uh, there's there's a lot of people that can't access a formal diagnosis, um, our system isn't set up to to treat everyone equally. And so for that reason alone, self-diagnosis, if it brings comfort and relief and helps improve functioning and understanding of self and improvement in your relationships, have at it, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I will say that. Um, you know, the it, it takes a trained clinical eye to diagnose somebody with ADHD just because someone's a doctor or a therapist or a psychologist doesn't mean that they can rule ADHD in or out. It has to be someone with specific training in that discipline. And there's lots of ways to find that through patient advocacy organizations and physician groups and things like that. Um, but there's, there's this sense of these, these are things that people have been struggling with in the back of their mind and in their subconscious for a long time. So it's a lifelong condition the reason it's, you know, such a massive group of people out there that have all kind of like found each other, quote unquote, is because, you know, if seven to nine percent of adults globally have ADHD, um, eight in 10 of them don't know it. So they're undiagnosed, it's underrecognized, it's undertreated, and probably a majority of that adult population are women. Because what ADHD looks like when it walks into a doctor's office is anxiety and depression. So in order to do no harm, 
I believe. And in order to do the least invasive thing first, a doc reasonably is going to treat your anxiety and depression, right? And when that doesn't work, unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people will sit with that wrong diagnosis or the medicine that isn't quite right and feel continuously shitty up and down, off and on for the next 15 years until they see a TikTok that puts together a constellation of things. They realize they've struggled with not during the pandemic, not just since the pandemic, but they're really their whole lives. And there's been times of great success and times of total dumpster fire that are kind of inexplicable. If you have inexplicable dumpster fires in your life, right, despite your intelligence, despite your talent, despite all the positive things you have going for you, go get assessed. I would say, I would dare say that if you're if your life is a dumpster fire by somebody who's affecting that, creating that dumpster fire, get that person checked out. Because I can absolutely relate to that as somebody who is turned my life into it. No, but it has turned my life into a dumpster fire largely because I believe of undiagnosed. Uh, yeah. So that that's where, so some people say, where are all these people hiding? How come all these people have ADHD and nobody knows? Because it's quite invisible, right? These symptoms are inside of, you know, brain functioning and that drives behavior. These aren't intentional things that people do, but it really can derail your life and your family's life and your partner's life as well. And where do we find them? A lot on couples therapy couches, in family court, um, getting divorced, all those things, getting fired, being underemployed. And then, you know, having interpersonal problems and trouble at work and constant stream of toxic bosses like to Nadine's article, which was great and covered so much of that stuff. The workplace is a lot of places. We're in our best behavior at work. So when stuff is showing up at work and work is hard, like repeatedly over and over and over again, no matter where you're working, we got to figure that out. Oh, could I just say one thing? I was going to say, that's exactly what happened to me. It was like two, uh, it was, I I think I'd gone on two mat leaves to avoid uncomfortable issues at work. (laughs) I mean, I wanted to have those children, but (laughs) 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 it worked out. Uh, But the third time it happened where I was struggling at work with deadlines and feeling like I was working harder than everyone else and getting less done. Um, and just frustrated and tired was after the, my second child, you know, was maybe around two and I came home frustrated. And my husband at the time said, you know, you can't go on another mat leave. We're not having more kids. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, this is a cycle. Like this is a pattern. And I Mm. need to look at this now and figure Mm. out like, why does this keep coming up for me? And that's what led me to my diagnosis. And to your point, like, thanks. Good for you. Yeah, good for you for like, it's that moment. It's that one gut check moment of like, oh, wait a minute. There's a common denominator here. Shit hits me. Yeah, right. Yeah, which lots of people don't have that light bulb moment, you know? So I do, you're right. I feel grateful. I might take that. Give myself a little pat on the back. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about this then a little in a couple of ways. So first off, the, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, be, as you mentioned, there's a lot of you know autism, ADHD. There's a lot of different things that you know that fall under this neurodiversity. But let's just focus in on ADHD because that seems to be a big one that I'm seeing with uh, people in my community being diagnosed later in life. Uh, but you said in a we had a 
a brief conversation before we start this podcast that for women, that presents very differently. So I would like to talk about how it presents for women. And then once you know what that is, how does that change things for you? Because you yourself went years and years undiagnosed in this field, but undiagnosed, which is odd. So, so let's start with, you know, how does it present differently for women? So uh, ADHD um, is shows up equally amongst all the sexes um, for, as a neurobiological condition that we're born with. Girls and women are socialized differently from birth um, and socialized to be pleasers, to be relational, to uh, not cause problems for the teacher in the classroom. That's not to say there aren't girls that are more rambunctious, but they're typically not the desk flippers, right? Boys, boys are uh, permitted and it's expected that, that little boys behave that way. And it's actually our teachers in elementary school who are the first line in many ways of identification. So the kids that are so disruptive that have such a hard time um, being engaged with a traditional model of teaching who get bored, who need to be engaged in different ways, get up and move around. And, and if that causes a problem for the teacher, the teacher identifies it. And that kind of starts the ball rolling with calls home to parents and what's going on. And, you know, ADHD is familial. And so whether the teacher knows it or not, she's calling parents who both or one of them probably has ADHD too. So to them, it might be problematic. They might notice it and not know what to do about it, but it might not be abnormal to them because as far as they're concerned, that's how they were as kids or that's how kids are, right? The little girls in the classroom are kind of more quiet, daydreamy. They're probably socialized to try and please the teacher, to get that kind of praise from a teacher, to be helpers, um, to be good little girls, quote unquote. And so because they're not causing a problem for their teachers, they're not the ones that there's a lot of attention focused on. And, you know, those are the report card comments that are, Christina is so bright, if only she would apply herself. Or if Christina would spend as much time on her work as she does chatting and socializing, she'd be much more consistent in her marks. Or, you know, da 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 I think you're just rhyming off, it just insert Candace, and you've just rhymed off every report card I had as a child. Right. And so it's, that's why part of the assessment is actually going back and reading report card comments, not because it's less about your grades. I mean, it is about grades somewhat, and I'll tell you why. Um, because you can have really great grades and have like three graduate degrees and still have ADHD, right? So it's not about intelligence at all. It's about execution on your intelligence is what the, what the issue is. And so, so when I talk to people about grades, I'm curious about the point spread, <laughs> not about your average, really. So, but anyway, back to women. So then the elementary school system, at least in Ontario, is still actually quite supportive for kids. Teachers are pretty hands-on in the classroom and manage their classrooms. But high school hasn't changed a bit. And so, you know, a lot, all, all bets are off. And so girls who were kind of getting by um, with, you know, you know, daydreaming in and out and catching enough or being intelligent enough to get good marks, whether or not they truly grasp the material, um, get to high school, all the supports fall away. Kids are expected to self-advocate. They're expected to be able to study. They're expected to be able to self-start. And that's when 
they can't. And often what I see is um, there's perfectionism that starts to creep up. There's social interactions and social challenges that are missed. Social anxiety creeps up because what untreated ADHD and undetected ADHD turns into is anxiety. And what untreated anxiety turns into is depression. That's how it progresses. And that's why when women and teenage girls, older teenage girls and women finally show up on on our therapy couches or in their doctor's offices, it looks like depression and anxiety. And so it's not that you don't treat that. You do treat it. It's important to note whether those are existing separately from the ADHD or they're driven as a result of living with untreated ADHD and feeling like something's wrong with you because nobody gets you and you always feel like you're a beat behind everyone else and you miss things despite how smart you are, which is how you get by in the first place, right? So great chameleons, which is a protective skill. I mean, there's a, there's a place for this. The first 15 years of my career was in sales and marketing. I was real good at it. And I think a lot of people with ADHD are really good at it. And, I, you know, my suspicion is there's a lot of undiagnosed ADHD in certain professions that are very structured. And then there's a lot of ADHD in certain professions that are wildly unstructured, but depend on a high degree of urgency, maybe like journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that printer Word deadline out. puts the fear of and God in it. So like working in the ER, being an ER doc or working in ICU or being a paramedic or a firefighter or a cop, any, any crisis work and the structured jobs being like teaching, like you show up, you know exactly what you're doing hour by hour of the day. Someone has told you what your job is. You don't have to manifest any of that yourself, right? Very structured. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense, actually, because it's that adrenaline. You 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 train yourself to rely on the adrenaline of of the final hour. The deadline. Yeah, yeah. And your deadline could be, you know, five thirty. I got to pick up my kids from daycare, and so suddenly three thirty right. or five thirty is when you get all the you know work done in the day, or yeah. you know, it's like before bed or whatever. Everyone is a little different. Well, and is that a problem to be solved? Maybe not. Um, I think the place for adults where it comes up to be a problem is in our relationships, because you can do what you do best, left unfettered and wild in the world. But when other people are depending on you and you've made a commitment to allow that and engage in relationships, then then your behavior does impact other people. And it does. It's not it's not a them problem. This is an us and a we problem. And that's why we find it in couples therapy. The the high school thing you mentioned is really interesting. Uh, grade nine, first semester, I was on the honor roll. I didn't graduate with my class by half a credit. And mm. so in that time period, and also the high school I went to switched over to independent learning, which was supposed to be more like, it's more like university style. Like you, you oh, have boy. 20 units to complete and yeah. you can be done high school in April if you're disciplined. Or you cannot graduate by half a credit. So it's, it was, yeah, wow. That's really when it started showing up for me, for sure. Um, Yeah. Well, in in kids that go masked, quote unquote, through high school, I, I find often are kids who have parents who are either very structured themselves. So mom was a teacher or parents were cops. So there was this very kind of regimented, structured routine life. Um, And then when those kids, 
or they played like rep hockey. So they had a high level of athletics and all the structure and um, community and camaraderie that comes with like really high intense competitive sport. But then when they leave those environments and they transition into more independent living, you know, and thinking and, and taking care of yourself to your point, Nadine. So into university, post-university, the birth of children, the change of a major job where the structure changes a lot. That's when ADHD is revealed, right? Because some people will say, I'm struggling so much now. Sometimes the pandemic revealed it a lot in people, but I, I don't know if I was struggling before. And I'm like, tell me about your life. They tell me about their life. And the reason they weren't struggling is because everything was set up and organized for them by somebody else. It's when they've had to come up with that themselves, the executive functioning part of our brain is the part that manages all of that, that thinks two steps ahead for us. It's virtually really hard. And then you end up, what a lot of people unconsciously do is a lot of us with ADHD find each other, fall in love and get married. We're attracted to each other because we get each other, right? So... If you have ADHD and you don't think your partner does, that doesn't, I mean, they might present really differently than you and they just might have different strengths and maybe that's why it works. And then maybe that's also why it doesn't work, right? This might be the most painful podcast I've ever recorded. I have to tell you, <laughs> there, there are all kinds of red flags going up here. Information we'll, is we'll like power maybe, maybe we'll do that in a later podcast. Okay, let's talk about... The moment then that that grown women, yes, uh, and I'm just because this is what she said. So, yep, what he what he said is another podcast. But what she said, let's talk about grown women okay. when they get that moment of diagnosis. The veil is lifted. They're sitting there having all these aha moments. What does that look like? How do you? Take that information and now channel it into, uh, you know, your new life. And I'm putting that in quotes, but it must feel like a new life to understand yourself at that level. Yeah. Yeah. There's also grief. I was just going to say, like, initially there's grief because when you first start reading about it, the outcomes for neurodivergent brains are like not great, right? Higher rates of divorce, higher chance of car accidents, higher rates of unemployment, higher rates of living below the poverty line. Um, and obviously there's a spectrum on all of these things in terms of, you know, I don't love the term function, high functioning, but there is a spectrum. And I think like when you're first reading about it, you're just like, wow, my life's going to suck. Or, or this is, if you go, this is why my life has sucked. And now I can do something about it. Obviously that you know, gives you something else um, mm -hmm. to channel. But it's, I think, going through, for me, therapy, discovering coaching, which has been the most impactful in terms of being able to observe my thoughts, meditation, things like that, and starting to figure out um, what what is going to help, right? What mm -hmm. is going to change the trajectory of my life um, did definitely give me a new license on life. But it's been you know, 12, 13 years of trial and error since my diagnosis, I would say. Actually, just quickly, did you, did you find relief through medication, Nadine, or did you go a completely different route? I went a completely different route at first. I tried, you know, homeopathy. I went to the naturopath, um, uh, you know, I exercise, all those things. And I definitely tried um, working through my systems and looking at my environments and things like that first. Um, but I found in the pandemic, in the absence of being able to 
go to the gym at lunch, walk over to a colleague's desk and have a quick chat for some energy or head to the cafe for a different space to work in. Um, I was really, really struggling last year. And so uh, I just thought, okay, I got to try this. Like, why not? I look at everything as, you know, collecting data. Let's collect some data. What is my brain like on medication? This is one thing I haven't tried. Let's pull that lever and see what happens. And it honestly, there was a bit of like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this sooner? Because I had all these mm-hmm. thoughts. There's so much stigma around medicating mental illness or or different brains. Um, and I had all these opinions about it. And once I parked that and I looked at it as let's collect some data, it was just, for me, it's been life-changing. I could have been a millionaire. I just keep saying that. I could have been a millionaire with my intelligence if I could just have it. Just sort of. Well, let's let's just clear the clouds. Oh, that's true. I will be. So, so Christina, tell me then what you what you see typically how this plays out for women once they get a diagnosis. I see Nadine a lot. I see a lot of Nadines, um, and so some so some people have the experience like me. Before I even had the diagnosis, I was like, I want that medication. And I, and I think for me, I know the data. And unlike with anxiety and depression that is not associated with ADHD, um, therapy is equally as efficacious as medication. And together, they're most efficacious, right? But you could reasonably choose between the two options and have a similar outcome. That is not the case for ADHD. Far and away, medication is the first-line treatment for ADHD because it is incredibly efficacious. And in fact, a lot of the psychosocial interventions don't work very well at all without medication. It's not that you can't do them, but they don't work as well without medication. And you can actually go to therapy unmedicated, not knowing you have ADHD, and walk away feeling like you fail therapy because it's hard to be consistent And it's hard to feel understood if it's really hard to articulate why your experience of life is so different from everyone else's when you don't know that there's a reason for it or what the reason is, right? can be really invalidating experience. I want to say that of all of the different neurodivergences, what I'm speaking to specifically there is ADHD. Autism is not a medical problem to be solved. It is a a way of being in the world, whatever, right? Um, people with autism can have comorbidities. And so when we talk about treatment, we're talking about treating those comorbidities like ADHD. A lot of people with autism have ADHD too and vice versa. There's a big overlap. Um, and, and so the, the treatments uh, that are evidence-based and recommended around the world are medication combined with therapy and coaching. And add-on family support and now we're cooking with gas. That is the best outcomes you can have for people. Um, and, and it's incredible to work with people through that. It's, it's incredible the transformative changes that people go through. But a lot of people come with self-stigma, stigma about medication, or they've tried an antidepressant in the past and didn't like that experience. And so they think that ADHD medication is the same. And it's 100% not. It's a very different experience. And so I work with people regardless of what, what they want to do to get to achieve the goals that they want. But the one thing I do is make sure I explain to them what the differences are, because to me, that's true informed consent. 
right? I don't want to let people I'm working with walk away with misinformation because that's on me, right? My job as a healthcare provider is to both respect your opinion, but provide the right information for you to make an informed decision, right? So I, I think from back to your original question, Candace, when women first show up and we figure this out, for me, what I see is like, on average, it's like a two to three year unfolding. I call it the reckoning. Because <laughs> you do, you have to get to know yourself again. You have to get to know yourself. We re-look back at family history. You can reinterpret a lot. We assigned meaning to a lot of things. And it turns out, maybe that's actually not what was happening. And something else was happening. And being able to come to terms with that, to find joy in that, to rediscover your strengths, all the things you were criticized for, all those report card comments. Hey, man, that's how I make my living now. Turns out those are my strengths, except nobody, no adults around me recognized that those were my strengths. So they didn't know that they were actually supposed to encourage me. It must be, must be profoundly, um, I don't know, like I can't even, it, it, it must be a profound moment to sit there and look at your life yeah. through an entirely different lens. Mm-hmm. Every memory mm-hmm. would now have a new yeah. meaning, wouldn't yeah. it? All the memories we we have, we don't have a lot of memories because of the working memory deficit, but it's not really, not always from trauma, guys. It's like a working memory deficit, right? The ones we do have, yeah, we can reinterpret. There's a, a wonderful, one of my um, Francophone clients had a wonderful phrase, and I'm horrible at French because I grew up in the States. So my accent's terrible, so I can't butcher it. But when you're, when you're out to dinner in Quebec with your friends and the bill comes and you need to, to split it up, the way you say, like, the settling of the scores. Um, I think it's like Le Rouge, Rouge Lamont du Comte. And it's the reckoning. So I call it the reckoning. And the settling of the scores, I feel like, is almost a little bit more accurate. You spend a couple of years, you come to terms with it. You're like, okay, I know what this means. You make some gains, some wins. And then, you know, it's like a roller coaster. There's waves of stuff that comes up and hits you. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like that thing. And then you kind of process it all over again. And it is, it's a resettling of all the scores of your past. Everything makes more sense. It gives you such a sense of knowing yourself and confidence and being able to believe in yourself again. That's so powerful. And it's so, such a privilege as a therapist to like literally watch people make these transformations in front of me. It's such a privilege. It's, it's incredible. I love it. I feel the same as a coach. It's, uh, you know, to your point, we have so many stories about our past. And then when you discover your ADHD, you, I mean, everyone, you don't have to discover a neurodivergency to, to do this. But what I love about being a story coach is, you know, I take my journalism expertise. We examine everything to get to like that neutral circumstantial point in the story. Then we start picking apart the facts and what, what is opinion? What is judgment? And then rewriting those stories to empower you to say, hey, you saw it that way, but is that really what happened? Is it possible to see it this way? You can edit your past. It's so powerful. And when you really start to explore those stories that you've been carrying with you and realize that you're not your stories, you know, you're the observer of the stories, you're the creator of the stories. It just gives you this liberation as a woman. You know, we are... I mean, I can guess roughly by looking at us, we're all somewhere in our 40s. Like we grew up on rom-coms in the 80s and 90s that socialized us a certain way of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a wife and a mother. 
and an employee, and we can rewrite all of that. There's so much mm-hmm. that we've just absorbed about who we are from external mm-hmm. and, you know, media, pop culture, parents, and every single one of those, like you're too sensitive. You know, we talk about that a lot. Christina covers that too. You're too sensitive. That's a gift. The world could use some more of that in its leadership right now. Let me tell you. I have to, I, I have to tell you, um, You know, sitting here saying too sensitive, I mean, I remember as a child, I would cry at the drop of a hat. And what I learned, what I was conditioned to to do was to be cold Mm -hmm. and to shut that down. So because people probably blamed you for it. Oh, why are you crying? Why are you so upset? What's, you know, like, and, and because I would break down equally you know, happy, sad, angry, you know, whatever the emotion, the tears would come. Right. And so it didn't matter. And and so it was, it was that I was too sensitive and it's like, I'm not sad right now. I want to beat you up, (laughs) but the tears are going to come, the tears are going to come anyway, you know? And, and, and because I was so critiqued for that through my entire life that, that basically I just learned to shut it down my learned response was to shut that down. You know what my, my comeback for that is with, with people who say things like that is, you know, cause crying and expressing emotion is a normal human function. Mm-hmm. Like, like pooping is. So you can turn to somebody and say, why, why are you pooping? Cause you can, you can shut that down right now. We all can. And you know what happens? You get constipated and then it's going to explode. Nobody wants that. Right. We have to allow children and people and men and women and everybody, whoever and however you identify, to just be human. Because that part is the same for all of us. Completely. So, and so crying is a, is a natural, it's actually a great way to, to, to close the stress cycle. You know, um, there's a great book about burnout by the Nagoski sisters and they talk about, love that book. oh yeah. my God, so good. And the, mm-hmm. and they talk about, you know, stress being like, you're going through the tunnel. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. And crying is your body's way of, you know, I say to my daughter often, there's no shame in it. It's like your heart got really full or your body just can't hold that anymore. And we have this release valve. How cool is that? We're born crying. We're born crying. Stressful experience. And that cry is the greatest relief to every human in the world. Oh my gosh, yes. And then for some reason after that, it all changes. Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. It's because it makes it makes us uncomfortable, right? When people express emotion in front of us, it makes us uncomfortable. And so parents and whatnot have shut it down in the past. And and then you start to internalize that, right? Like to your point, Candice, to your story. Nadine, I just wanted to say what you said, what you were saying before about that freedom that you feel now is so, and then tying it back to Candice, what you said, women's first experience when they're diagnosed Everyone, whether it's your child or for yourself, everyone's so afraid of the label. And that to me is part of ADHD time blindness. Like we're worried about what's happening now instead of thinking about what we're working to achieve or prevent bad outcomes 20 years from now because there's a mortality rate that comes with ADHD that goes untreated. And there's more freedom in diagnosis than anyone could possibly imagine. 
I think I think this these conversations, though, you know, it normalizes it, it becomes so so, you know, at some point, hopefully, there's just a somebody will say, yeah, I have ADHD. And it's just, oh, yeah, no big deal. Like, just, you know, we'll we'll we won't focus on it, it that will remove sort of the, I guess, the uh, judgment that comes with these labels. So let's talk about the workforce, because that's really why we're, we're here today. So I mean, we've we've gone through a lot of it. So I think, obviously, we all know that Everything that falls under neurodivergency comes with gifts, really. Uh, you know, somebody can do something better than somebody else, and we should be embracing all these. But how do we do that in the workplace? Uh, because it, there's still a lot of stigma attached to some of these diagnoses. Like autism specifically would be something that the workplace may struggle with. How do we make the workplace more accepting? And, and maybe, you know, better really with with all of these combined skills in one place it could be such a robust place to work if it's handled correctly well i think you know christina talks about cognitive diversity which i really want to touch on because i just love that phrase but if we zoom out a bit you know neurodiversity is invisible to christina's earlier point and we're doing a lot of work right now in terms of diversity equity and inclusion and and in some places they call it belonging for employees to be recognized and feel accepted and understood from very visible, right? We're talking about race. We're talking about um, gender identity, sexual identity, um, disabilities, right? Physical disabilities. And that's great. I think those are very important conversations to have. Um, when we talk about neurodiversity in the workplace, you know, we've talked a little bit about the gifts. Some being someone who is chatty, for example, I'm on a team right now in a tech company where, um, you know, people are a bit more introverted and we're on Zoom, all of us. So who's going to bring the party? ADHD brain. You know, I'm the one who's going to maybe slightly overshare and then break down like those barriers a little bit and break the ice. Um, I'm probably going to go first if we do office karaoke. Like It's just it's just the way it is. Um, and uh, to make the most of those strengths, we also need to, you know, build that cognitive diversity. So you have a team that supports each other um, and. Uh, I think the big thing is that, you know, if I give employers and leadership teams anything to take away, it was the last paragraph of my article, it's you need a willingness willingness to learn and unlearn and to be uncomfortable. Well, you're going to get it wrong, like a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's your intent that matters. You know, do you want to make your workplace better for all employees? Well, that means you're going to have to examine your own stories about certain kinds of people. Um, You know, neurodiverse people have been considered weird a lot of times, right? Um, You know, are they really weird or are they just, is that just how their brain is functioning? Christina, talk a bit about uh, cognitive diversity, because I just love that so much. Well, I mean, I think I think really what it means is that, uh, to your point, everyone's got different strengths. And so I, th- I think employers and people managers sometimes, they're afraid of getting into diagnostic healthcare things because, you know, there's like HR rules maybe, or they think that's not their place. And so, okay, fine. Like if you're not set up or supported in your workplace to manage from that perspective, what you can do is focus on people's strengths. And the thing that is kind of critical for 
people with ADHD in particular are, they're really sensitive to like environmental changes and perceptions of whether they're doing well or not from people that it matters to them. So if you're managing a team of people and you have somebody who you brought in because they were a dynamo star performer and they killed it for that first year, and now we're in year two of that relationship and they're not killing it anymore. And, you know, they're, they're down. You can't figure out what's going on. Aside from pandemic stuff, being a human being with them and kind of working with them to examine what's changed in the environment at work, what's changed in the dynamics of the team that are impacting how they feel about their functionality. These are people who need positive reinforcement, not threats or negative reinforcement. You continue to tell them what they do really well and what you depend on them to bring to the team and the value they bring to that team, they will get up and work hard for you like nobody's business. But when those people get criticized and get threatened, they will turtle in like you have never seen before. And we're not getting the best from people. So a simple, easy fix that's really common in the business world from a, from a, a languaging perspective is strengths-focused team building and knowing what everyone's really great at and letting them setting up the environment to be free to do that thing is is really important because people's strengths are kind of unchanging. What changes and fluctuates is their performance. But the performance variable that's impacting them usually isn't something from within that person. It's in the environment. And if you're managing business operations, I, I think that's your job to manage that environment so that you can create the circumstances that let your people perform the best, right? And and being able to 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 talk openly about what everybody brings to the table. Everyone needs to know how they're valued at work and why their contribution is important. I think if there is an employer out there could, who could figure out a way, you know, I think what a business that would be if you could really manage a neurodiverse like literally go out and seek a neurodiverse work workforce. There's yeah. there's job postings now where they're specifically looking for autism brains, for example. Yep. Autism yep. brains are wow. fantastic at patterning, mathematics, data analysis, you know, really deep work, uh, yep. often on numbers. ADHD and numbers, not so great. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're starting to see that, uh, in the article I talked about, um, SAP, SAP is a Canadian company, um, that has an autism at work program where they actually really support, uh, individuals from hiring through to their career journey. And, uh, if you're, if you're an employer listening to this and you're interested, um, you know, there's lots of third party agencies, not-for-profits that are so willing to help place people with neurodivergency um, and and willing to educate. And I think bringing in people mm-hmm. with diverse experience to just tell their lived experience, you know, have a conversation with someone. Uh, it's easy to find us on LinkedIn. We're pretty chatty, the ADHD brains at least. Right. Everyone's <laughs> constantly posting probably has ADHD. There's there's lots of social media criteria to find ADHD. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things I sorry, one of the things I, that surprised me, and I did not did not know this prior to recording this, was that the Ontario Human Rights Commission recognizes ADHD as a disability. I did not know that. Do you think? Do you think most? I don't think most people know that. Honestly, I think that is people might not know that. Most people probably don't know that. And and 
to be fair, does does my ADHD disable me? Absolutely not. And there's no way I'd ever qualify for that tax credit. There's no physician on this planet that would provide me that paperwork for that. So so it actually has to to impair your life to the point that it's disabling to qualify for that in terms of like tax benefits and stuff. But I will say from a workplace point of view, not knowing that, that that's, there's such simple, you can ask for all the accommodations for ADHD without ever using the phrase or the acronym ADHD. Because because the accommodations for ADHD are actually accommodations and interventions that work for everybody. They're just transformational for people with ADHD, right? So they're so, they're so general and they're things from as simple as, I just need to wear earbuds if we're doing this open office situation, right? I can't be distracted. Otherwise, I'm not going to get anything done. You know what I mean? That's an accommodation. Glasses are a disability aid. Every, that's cool. Nobody has a problem with people wearing glasses and getting an accommodation because you know what's the natural solution for myopia? Squinting. Squinting's natural. So if you don't believe in regular treatment and you just want to go natural, you shouldn't be wearing glasses. Right? <laughs> I'm kind of, science, like science marches on, right? Like we want to do things that benefit and improve our life. We should do them. A hundred percent. You know, it's, it's, uh, you had this great point, Christina, like, would you be mad at someone for having asthma? No, you'd hand them their puffer. And right, right. for some reason, when we, when it comes to, you know, things that are in our head, uh, quote unquote, right, right. we're so harsh on people. Oh, at work, people are like, oh, they're just using that so they can get out of doing something. You know what I mean? And so, so there's a, there's a, a great ADHD advocate and physician in Oakville, Kenny Handelman, who wrote this great book. Um, and in the book, he takes the asthma example a little bit further. And I love what he does with it because it's like, okay, someone's having an asthma attack. You can see they're in distress. We don't question them and say like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you breathe? There's lots of air around you. We just hand you, we hand them the puffer and they take their medicine. And then they can breathe, hopefully, right? But in the rest of the day, when they're breathing fine, we don't say, oh, you were faking it. See, you're fine, right? But that's what people with ADHD go through all the time because sometimes they're super functional. And back to the workplace scenario, when you put somebody with ADHD and their natural strengths and interests, nobody can stop them. They will perform and work and work and work because that's what an ADHD brain does, right? They get stuck when other things are happening or when they're, they're asked to do something that they're not good at or there's fear going on or there's intimidations, all, again, external environmental things, right? So being able to, to actually understand people really well, um, which I think there's a lot of really innovative companies doing this, can can really maximize um, the talents that people can bring to organizations, for sure. I think this conversation today is people listening, or there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, I have ADHD, I need to go talk to somebody. That's the first thing. <laughs> and you should. <laughs> the second thing is, I, the second thing is, I think a lot of people um, will realize how we need to normalize this conversation. And I think that's great. And we are normalizing this conversation. And just through these simple analogies you've made, you know, about asthma, you know, like, it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. We, we, we wouldn't question handing somebody a puffer or putting glasses on to see better 
why right. we struggle with why I mean again this is part of a larger mental health discussion you know mm-hmm. we've done this for years with mental health as well um, and I think we're starting to normalize those conversations so I hope that this is you know also swept mm-hmm. up in that uh, but I think employers hopefully listening will understand that this can make their workplace better embracing neurodiversity as an advocate I would say you know we have an election coming in Ontario and these are issues that affect all kinds of families and people everywhere of every walk of life. And it's a great time to ask your candidates what they're doing to support these issues. Um, I would direct people maybe to the National Patient Advocacy Organization, CADAC, C-A-D-D-A-C. And there's loads of free information that people can get to support themselves, find help, find information. Nadine's got great information on her social media posts. Um, And there's lots of ways for people to investigate this and empower themselves. And you, Christina, you have a, well, you have a podcast, which I'm finding very helpful, but also you have information. So let's, let's close out this, this podcast then, because we've, we've been talking for quite a while and we could probably talk forever, but uh, so let's, as since we've naturally just sort of landed here, Let's share with people uh, where they can connect with you. Uh, we'll start with Nadine because Nadine, you have an article in Canadian Business. I'm sure it's, on, it's it is online. I know it is, but you have a coaching business, so maybe you could just rhyme off a few places uh, for people to check with you. And I will put them in the show notes, but just go ahead and rhyme them off for me. Rhyme yeah, them. absolutely. So the article is uh, how to support neurodiversity in the workplace. It's on CanadianBusiness.com on the homepage right now. Uh, Christina is featured in it. So you get a bit of both of us. Uh, my coaching work, you can find at kickstartology.com. And you can find me probably best engage with me on Instagram at Nadine Araxi. And Candice will have that in the show notes. Um, but I'm pretty responsive there. So yeah. Okay, Christina? Um, probably the best place to land to find all the connecting points and information is, is the website of my group, which is digalittledeeper.ca. And then from there, you'll find our socials. We have an ADHD resource hub. There's workplace information. There's subpages for families, for women in particular, um, couples, all that kind of stuff. And then on Instagram, I'm Dig a Little Deeper Therapy. And on TikTok, I'm Stina905, S-T-I-N-A 905. Because I joined TikTok not to make work videos, but to like look at cats and stuff. During the pandemic, <laughs> embarrass my kid. Yeah, my, my TikTok is all dogs. It's literally yeah. all dogs. That's my algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> Puppies and dogs. Yeah, my, my, first, my first videos, if you scroll all the way back, are just of like my kids and my dogs and my cat. And then I was like, oh, we should make an ADHD couples TikTok. I said to my husband, who is not a social media dude. And so we did one night and that, that kind of blew up for me in 2020. And it's been, that was, it's been fun. Ever since, I have to say. All right. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. This was um, one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've done in a while. I really just love the information shared here. I think everybody's going to get something out of it, whether they have ADHD or not. Uh, some Everybody can get something out of this podcast. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. Uh, maybe do a follow-up down the road yeah sure thanks for having us this is great nadine thanks for writing your article because i think it's going to reach it reaches a lot of people 
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.